exclusive podcast from Impact 89 FM. Podcasting from the campus of Michigan State University, this is Impact Exposure. You are tuned to Impact Exposure. I'm your host, Emily Fox. Tonight on, Exp- in, on Impact Exposure, Lansing Award-winning filmmaker Michael McCallum will be on the show to talk about his feature film, Lucky, which will play at Celebration Cinema this weekend. And with St. Patrick's Day just around the corner, I will talk with Michigan-Irish musician Kitty Donahoe about her performance at the Creel Gallery this Thursday. But in the studio, Theresa Bernardo with the College of Veterinary Medicine is here to talk about her projects in utilizing technology and social media during natural disasters as it relates to the tragedy in Japan. Welcome to the show, Theresa Bernardo. Thank you very much for having me, Emily. So what were you doing right before you heard about the earthquake in Japan? Well, actually, last Friday I had previously scheduled to give a presentation to some of our... uh, our leadership on campus about serious uses of social media and how we might incorporate that at MSU. And then what happened right after you gave the presentation? Well, I got a message by the next morning uh, from one of the participants in the in the meeting who said that uh, he went back to his faculty and found out that one of his faculty members and their family were in Japan. So he used one of the tools that I talked about, Google Person Finder, and put in a message, and by early the next morning, he had received a message from the mother-in-law of his missing faculty person that all were well. So he sent me a little thank you saying it actually works. And talk about, so talk about what is Google Person Finder, and talk about the other um, social networking sites that people have been able to use during um, the tragedies in Japan. Mm -hmm. Uh, Well, Google Person Finder really came out of Hurricane Katrina, Uh, as you know, you know there were thousands of people displaced, and they were using the technology of the time, which was bulletin boards. So people were posting messages, looking for my daddy, looking for my son, and all the important contact information was buried in these narrative pleas for help. And there were hundreds of bulletin boards, so anybody looking would have to go to each one of them. So fortunately, some tech-savvy volunteers got together, and they used technology to scrape all the important information off the web and put it in one database so that everybody could go to one place and search by name or telephone number. And uh, this was used over a million times. And since then, the same tool has reappeared. It reappeared after the Haiti earthquake, uh, except now it's run by Google. It's powered by Google, and after Haiti, it ran in, oh, French, English, Creole, and Spanish. And I know that uh, in this case, after the Japan earthquake, it was up within an hour and operating in Japanese and English. And by the time I gave a presentation that afternoon, there were over 7,000 records in it. Wow. And the next day, 66,000, and now there's about 150,000. That's amazing. And you were talking about um, how Haiti also utilized that after the earthquake, and you helped out in Haiti, didn't you? Well, I was working with the uh, regional office of the World Health Organization at the time in in Washington, D.C., so we had responsibility for all of the health response. And, uh, well, it was really quite remarkable, the role that social media played, and and that's led to my interest in in following sort of serious uses of social media now that I'm back at MSU. But uh, in the immediate moments after the earthquake, the big issue is finding people trapped in the rubble. And certainly in Haiti, uh, all the regular phone system, the public phones were down. A lot of cell towers were down. So how do you find people trapped in the rubble? They actually uh, had a group of volunteers in Washington, D.C. 
that uh, created a texting code, 4636, so that people could text messages in terms of where people were trapped. And they, they started, they had volunteers come in and they started mapping this out using, again, social media, open street map, so something that everybody could share and contribute to. So more and more people are learning how to use this and we're building on it with each disaster. And what are your hopes for? I mean, not hopes for future disasters, but no. do you think that this is just going to keep on building? Do you think a lot of people knew about these resources before a disaster strikes? People are starting to realize the importance of this, and we're seeing examples now of people that are starting to do exercises and training. One of the big issues is that the people most familiar with social media are your generation and younger, and the people that are in, in the position to actually you know, make decisions and be sure systems run and respond to emergencies tend to be my generation and older. So we need a way to uh, get those that use social media for recreational purposes to work with people that have responsibility for these situations to look at how we can use these things in new ways. Uh, certainly, as I said, people are learning as we go along. And now, for example, last September, there was an exercise held by San Diego State University Visualization Lab. And they actually did a simulation of an earthquake and a tsunami and an oil spill and disruption of the water supply now, it seemed overly complex at the time, but they didn't actually add in a nuclear problem. So we see that, you know, the true situation is actually even more complex. And this is what we need, is we need all hands on deck to deal with complexity. Now, being, having worked for the World Health Organization, you're working more, you know, individuals' health. So, I mean, obviously there's, there's in a tragedy like an earthquake and a tsunami, it's either, you know, you make it or you break it, but with a nuclear power plant, plant, what are some of the issues that you're most concerned about? Yes, well, our, our prime purpose with the World Health Organization is, is public health, so looking at, at it as a whole, of course, that consists of many individuals. Um, and in all cases, I think one of the things that social media adds to it, first of all, is information, but secondly is uh, geospatial and temporal information, so what is happening where and to whom, which will be particularly important. As I said, you know, this has been driven by emergencies because uh, social media is so immediate. That's where it's got its start. But it's really the longer-term problems where it's going to have a greater effect. And something like uh, nuclear radiation, they're going to have to monitor for a long time just the people, the air, the food, the water, so uh, knowing what levels are where, this is all going to be very important in the long term. And do you, are you in touch with any of your colleagues from the World Health Organization who are working in Japan right now? I follow some of the uh, websites, and uh, knowing how the system works, I also know whether, you know, to go to the IAEA, the International Atomic Energy Agency site, and you know where the updates and the daily briefings and the official information is. But this is another important part of social media, because you don't just want the official information. You also want the information from the people that are on the ground and seeing what's happening. And it's important to get, uh, <clears throat> you know, traditionally we relied only on the official information for many years. And now you have people on site reporting, sending pictures and videos. So you have more perspectives on a story. Now, you are also the founder of One Health Knowledge Initiatives. What is that? Well, that's an umbrella for some of the new initiatives that I'm starting to get going here at Michigan State University in basically serious uses of social media. 
And I can give you an example. A proposal we had put forward a few weeks ago involved mathematicians, computer scientists, social scientists, food safety experts, and myself from here and many other uh, universities uh, looking at how we could use social media for earlier detection of foodborne illness. So I think that, you know, we're just getting started in this field. I think there's just tremendous potential uh, for using social media for research, for education, for solving the important problems that we face. Well, in the studio is Theresa Bernardo, and she's with the College of Veterinary Medicine, and she was here to talk about her projects in utilizing technology and social media during natural disasters as it relates to the tragedy in Japan. Professor Bernardo, thank you so much for coming in. Thank you very much, Emily. You're listening to Impact Exposure on Impact Exposure. I'm your host, Emily Fox, and St. Patrick's Day is Thursday, and on the phone is Irish singer-songwriter Kitty Donahoe. She'll be performing an Irish-inspired concert at Creole Gallery this Thursday at 6 p.m., and it is a part of the 10-pound fiddle concert series. Welcome to the show, Kitty Donahoe. Thank you very much. So talk about your life as it relates to singing, um, I guess, Irish-inspired uh, music. Well, um, I, I tend to get billed as being an Irish or a Celtic singer, uh, neither of which I am. I'm, I'm a third-generation Irish, actually, Irish-American. Um, but I've always had a, a real strong um, uh, feel for that kind of music. And the first time that I really began to hear Irish music, I was about 19 years old, and I had gone to Nova Scotia, left home, and just hitchhiked. Uh, no, actually took a train over there. And I began to really hear these things like whistles and fiddles and accordions, and it just really resonated with me. I loved that sound. And after that point, I moved back to Michigan and uh, lived in the Corktown area of Detroit for a while, which is the, uh, the old Irish settlement, and uh, got more into Irish music. I would go to the Gaelic League. Um, I lived like two blocks from the Gaelic League with some friends, and the bands who played at the Gaelic League would stay there. So we all became friends, and we'd hang out afterward and talk about music and play music. And at that time, I was only playing guitar, but I, I just uh, really gravitated toward that particular sound. So I, I kind of uh, balanced, as I even sort of do now, I think, my, my more Midwestern take on songwriting and tune writing and the sort of Irish part of it that, that sort of just kind of creeps in. So it, it, music wasn't something that you kind of grew up with your family. It was something that you found first in Nova Scotia then? Well, no, actually. my um, I come from a big family, and, and my mom was a... Um, a concert pianist and was also studying uh, operatic voice when she got married and had um, kids. So we had a grand piano. My dad threw our television away when I was a kid and bought my mom a grand uh, piano instead or a baby grand. So she would play at night when all the kids were in bed and I, I would just hear this, this music, you know, wafting through the house when I was going to sleep and, um, and during the day when she could, she would play. So there was, there was always music going on and then I, I took piano when I was pretty young, like five or six, you know, just kind of learned some basic things. So it, it was always a pretty strong element in my life, even though I didn't 
think back then, um, I don't think I, I felt like I would maybe be a musician, but, but it was always just a strong thread running through me. So, Kitty, you graciously um, said that you'd be willing to do the interview, even though you say that March is a very busy month for you, and you're even currently at a rehearsal right now. Mm -hmm. um, I'm curious, how many musicians do you collaborate with in Michigan? Are they mostly um, Irish-inspired musicians? Um, not necessarily. I, uh, for this particular thing that we're doing, it's uh, Doug Birch, um, and we're at Doug's house right now, actually, in Hazlitt, and John Sands, and John plays fiddle, and Doug plays hammer dulcimer and whistle and accordion. Um, so when I'm doing the Irish kind of thing, it's, it's often those two. Uh, the other main person I play with is David Mosier, and he's, um, I've actually kind of had to drag him kicking and screaming into the, the Irish musical world. He's, he's kind of a bluegrass guy, but he's, he's a wonderful musician with a great ear, and he, he's sort of my main sideman when I'm doing solo gigs. And how many different instruments do you play? Well, that depends. <laughs> Some I play better than others, but I, I kind of think of four that I actually work on, and that would be guitar, citern, which is a kind of mandolin, um, piano, and I'm starting to, to work on fiddle. I'm not good by any stretch right now, but I, I'm putting a fair amount of work into doing the fiddle. But in addition to those, I do play like uh, mountain and hammer dulcimer, a little um, concertina, but those are mostly for uh, like school and library shows when I'm, I'm doing things for older people or for kids, and I, I mostly I demonstrate on those instruments. And where, you're performing at the Creole Gallery on Thursday. Where else do you usually perform in Michigan? Well, there's, um, there's not really a usually because I don't do the bar scene. I, I do concerts uh, pretty much primarily other than schools and libraries. So, you know, I play at the Ark a couple times a year and uh, the Trinity House Theater in Livonia. I was just there uh, last weekend with some people. Um, I'm blanking out here. Pretty much uh, like the Flint Coffee House, which is called the Sip and Lizard. You know, the places that there are to, to hear acoustic music around the state and out of the state, actually, is, is kind of what my venues are. So even on St. Patrick's Day, you're not going to do a bar venue? Oh, no. <laughs> well, actually, we did one last year, and we did the same one the year before. And, uh, you know, it, it's really, it's generally pretty awful. I mean, although the one that we did in Flint wasn't that bad. But, you know, you start getting people who've been drinking since oh, in yeah. the morning or whenever it's legal. And, you know, and, and it's 12 noon, and they're plastered, and they're falling on your stuff. I mean, that's a really awful thing to, to do. Yeah. In celebration of the Irish, no? <laughs> yeah. So this this concert that you're doing on Thursday, again, is at Creole Gallery in Old Town um, this Thursday, and it's a part of the 10-pound fiddle concert series. How did you get involved with the 10-pound fiddle? Well, I actually used to be the booking person of the 10-pound fiddle in the 80s, um, and uh, then kind of did that for a couple of years and passed on from that. But I, uh, that's one of the places that um, even if I didn't know the 10-pound fiddle people, if, if they didn't know me, that would be the kind of place that I would perform. That, that's the kind of venue like the Ark um, or any of those coffee houses where a, a songwriter like me can perform or a musician, somebody who's doing things in the acoustic side of, of, of music. I mean, those are like the great places that you want to play. They're listening audiences. They're totally committed to coming and hearing and, you know, supporting what you do. So they're, they're great venues to play. So I've heard a lot about the 10-pound fiddle over the past few years, but I didn't realize it's been around for quite a while. Do you know much about the history of how it started? You know, I, I really don't accept that. I think um, Bob Blackman on WKAR and Sally Rogers, I believe, started it maybe in the 70s, sometime 
sometime before I was really doing much around East Lansing, but I think they started it um, at Williams Hall in, in, on campus, and it was there for a number of years, and then I'm not sure what the, the whole, um, you know, uh, general move of things is there, but um, it, it's gone through several several hands of volunteers. They're all volunteers who, who uh, run it, which is, is pretty standard for those kinds of things. So, you know, somebody will do something, maybe publicity or the booking person or something for a few years, and then they get burned out or move on and someone else takes it over. So I think every, every um, crew of people who do run it kind of leave their own mark, and I think they change it a little bit. And uh, I know Sally Potter's doing a fabulous job. She's just one of the most organized people I've ever met, and she's, she's got a great vision for how things should go, and she manages to make it work. So I, I'm, I think it's great that the 10 pounds fiddle is still very healthy after all the years that it's been around. So after I listened to some of your um, audio tracks, I noticed that a lot of your music, um, you're, you're obviously a, a singer with a, with a wonderful vocal range, but some of your music is just instrumental. So what mm -hmm. do you enjoy doing more? Just, just laying, you know, kind of sitting back and playing, or do you enjoy singing as well as playing? Well, as far as um, creating the music, they're, they're, I'm very, very melody-oriented. I always have been, so I think... Uh, I, I mean, you know, I couldn't really say which I like better. They're just sort of different aspects of what I do. I, when I get a melody stuck in my head, it's like I can't leave it alone until I've done something with it. But it's also a challenge I enjoy to put lyrics to the to the melodies that that make sense that say what I want to say in some particular way. So I wouldn't say there's um, there's you know one or the other. I think they're just kind of different aspects of what I do musically. Well, on the phone is Kitty Donahoe. She will be performing at 6 p.m. this Thursday, St. Patrick's Day, at Creole Gallery as part of the 10-pound fiddle concert series. Kitty Donahoe, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Thank you, and I just should point out that the dinner starts at 6, but we don't start playing till 7.30. Okay. Well, okay. thank you very much. Thank you, Emily. All right, bye. Mm -hmm. Bye. Exposure again. That was Kitty Donahoe, and uh, she'll be performing at the Creole Gallery this Thursday, St. Patrick's Day, at 6 p.m. Actually, she'll be playing at 7 p.m. I should say the event starts at 6 p.m. And in the studio is Stuart Gage. He is the director of MSU's Remote Environmental Assessment Laboratory, and he is here to talk about his research in soundscape ecology and what sounds can tell us about our environment. Welcome to the show. Well, thank you. So, to first off, what is soundscape ecology? 
Well, soundscape ecology is the study of sound in relationship to the landscape. And what can it tell us? It can tell us all kinds of things. It can tell us, I believe, how healthy the in, that habitat is where the sounds are coming from. How so? Well, because you can uh, determine the kinds of organisms that are making the sound or the types of sounds that are being made, and then you can uh, determine whether or not they're good sounds or bad sounds. And where have you done these studies at? Are they usually urban locations or, you know, where is it in the U.S. overseas? And um, have you seen um, humans influence the soundscape ecology over time? Oh, there's no question about that. Well, I've done studies in Australia, in northern Canada, in Michigan, northern parts of Michigan, and in Lansing. did a study of called the uh, heartbeat of the city right in this city and tried to measure how the city sounds in relationship to the soundscape. Mm, interesting. Sounds like an ethnomusicologist rather than a... Well, it's partly that. Yeah, yeah. it's uh, it's getting into that. I'm, I'm an ecologist, but uh, I've gotten into all kinds of sort of different dimensions of the soundscape because of my interest in preserving the natural world. And too much uh, of our time, I think, is spent listening to we're closing ourselves off with the kinds of sounds that we want to listen to instead of reaching out to listen to the sounds of the earth. So when you look around campus and you see so many students plugged into their, their headphones or their cell phones, um, how do you think that affects them over time where they're not opening their ears up to the sounds in the environment? Well, I think that's a really, to my, to my mind, it's a very serious issue because uh, they're kind of closing out the natural world and internalizing it. And if we're going to uh, stay uh, healthy as a species, we need to be protecting our environment. And I think the sound is one of the metrics that can help us do a better job at protecting our biosphere. So talk a little bit more about um, the heartbeat of the city and what you found with that study in Lansing. Well, basically we, we took uh, two transects and we went from the rural areas right down in through the capital and out the other side to the rural areas and measured that during the winter, spring, summer and fall and have a huge array of, of recordings that we've made and we're in the process right now of writing a publication on on how the sound uh, is different in different places. Of course when you're hearing sounds of the uh, you know the city of near highways and roads the sounds are pretty horrific and if you're in a uh, park or in the you know the hinterlands of, of Lansing you can hear beautiful sounds of the birds it's really a great time to start thinking about sound right now not because it's the Ides of March but because you know the 15th of March but it's the the birds are all returning from their overwintering grounds to uh, to Michigan and beyond and um, for example there's oh I've seen just today red-winged blackbirds and sandhill cranes and turkey vultures and robins and so on that weren't there three or four days ago so all the birds are busy migrating and what do they do they set up their territories and they sing and they sing in parts of Lansing that are that are good for their habitat so they won't necessarily go into the parking lots and into the, the buildings but they'll sing they'll be looking for vegetation and places to live and places to feed and places to raise their kids and how did you get interested in the idea of soundscape ecology? 
Well, I've been interested in soundscape ecology, I think, for a very long time. Back when I was a young man, I studied birds in the boreal forest. And that was a job, and I had to go out and monitor birds and measure them and determine their territories, and that was all done with my ears. Now there's new technologies out there that uh, we're able to measure uh, the sound at a place for 24-7. So I've got a place up in Sheboygan where I set up six recorders and measure um, every half hour for the entire, you know, uh, as soon as I can get on the water after the ice breaks down to ice up, I measure 24-7 uh, and I've recorded 115,000 recordings in the last two years. Listening for loons primarily, that's one of my interests. I don't know if you remember what a loon sounds like, but uh, they're an amazing animal. Would you like me to play a loon for you? Yes, you brought in some technology here to, to show for us. I should say for our listeners, I'm talking to uh, Stuart Gage. Now, is that one loon? Actually, that's one loon, but you'll hear in a minute they'll be joined by other loons, so they signal back and forth on the water. And these, these recordings are made at uh, midnight on the 24th of uh, June. And loons are mostly northern Michigan, aren't they? Well, they were uh, distributed throughout Michigan, all the lakes, but because of high-speed boating and human disturbance, they're a very uh, vulnerable bird to human activity. And so once the boats start uh, going at relatively high speeds, the loons disappear. Mm. So they're still in uh, northern Michigan, but only on lakes where there's a minor disturbance. And so that's what I'm particularly interested in. <laughs> Excuse me. Is how these how these birds are distributed and how they're distributed within a lake. So we can keep the this the sound rolling for the atmosphere. Okay. Um, so how do you connect with sounds in your daily life? Well, I'm just passionate about going out and and making recordings and and even if I'm not making recordings, I love going out into the woods and into the wetlands and listening to the natural organisms. And talk about the idea of nature deficit disorder. Nature deficit disorder. Well, we basically have um, forgotten about the value of sound as a as a as an important thing that that we humans used to understand a lot about. You know, sound meant two things to us when when we were um, when we were looking for things and you know sound meant either you were going to find some food or <laughs> something was going to eat you so we were much more attuned to the importance of sound back in the in the early days in prehistoric times and as we evolved our societies we've lost our our appreciation and our value of of natural sounds and we've been more interested in listening to human-made sounds such as you know by musicians and so on and people that sing because we still have this innate joy of listening to music but not necessarily the music of the or the symphony of the biosphere but of the symphony of of the singers that are that are currently present today and also the classics so for the singers in your recording that you're playing right now those are still loons 
Well, these are still loons. We can play other animals. Let me play something else for you. I think you might uh, enjoy enjoy listening to perhaps the the sounds of uh, perhaps the sounds of owls in the evening. And where do you get these recordings from? These are from just at my cabin in northern Michigan, near Sheboygan. And what kind of owls are those? These are called barred owls. They're a beautiful, fairly large owl that um, that sings to each other in the in the evening. So, how many owls are out there? There's probably four or five that are talking to each other in this recording. Ah, that's interesting because can we turn it down just a little bit? Surely. Um, I was camping up in. Um, in Oregon this summer, and it's in the middle of the night, and and I was um, with my boyfriend, and we were we he was really worried because the idea of cougars may be out there. Yes, and we don't know what a cougar sounds like. In the middle of the night, we heard these types of sounds, kind of like a a whooping type thing, mm-hmm. and we didn't know what it was, and we thought it was a cougar the whole time. But now, it's good to know that that was indeed an owl. Sure, and it's you know that's why we need to appreciate our sounds. You've run into exactly the problem that I was talking about, whether it's a cougar or, <laughs> or just an animal talking to its friends or wanting to compete for you know for mate. That's why they that's why they sing. Because if I knew it was an owl, I would have been much more comforted. I'm than sure I'd. you would have. <laughs> no, it makes you a little nervous, and you you might uh, hear this particular sound, and this is a little more. A little more concerning, especially if you have, um, oh, let's say, uh, and what is that? They're the sounds of coyotes. Again, wow, uh, they're very re- high pitched. This recording is at uh, three thirty in the morning on the fifth of on the fourth of May. And so uh, I've been busy gathering all of these sounds and putting them into a digital acoustic library on a website. And so people can access this thing uh, and listen to the sounds of nature. And where can they access that? In a website called www.real.msu.edu. It's locally served up in the Manly Miles building just on campus here. Well, in the studio is Stuart Gage. He's director of MSU's Remote Environmental Assessment Laboratory, and he was here to talk about his research in soundscape ecology and what sounds can tell us about our environment. Thank you so much for joining us today. You're welcome. You're listening to Impact Exposure. You are tuned to Impact Exposure. I'm your host, Emily Fox, and in the studio is Michael McCallum. He is an award-winning Lansing filmmaker whose film, Lucky, is going to be shown at Celebration Cinema this Saturday and Sunday at 2 p.m. and 7 p.m. Welcome to the show, Michael McCallum. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Emily. So let's let's kind of go through... You've been making films in Lansing Air for the past decade. Talk about how you came to be making films. Wow, they just made me feel so old. My shoulders just sunk in right there a decade uh yeah it's been it's been a long haul i I started pursuing 
acting once I got out of high school in 97 and then uh, took some film classes at LCC. Uh, financial aid was cut and uh, that did not deter me and just started pursuing it after that, making some short films and then I started working on my first feature script for uh, Fairview Street. And talk about this film, Lucky, that will be shown at Celebration Cinema. Uh, Lucky is a drama with some comedic moments, main characters, different dysfunctional relationships over a four-year period. So I think it has some, some very relatable moments to people. I think uh, people will watch things, some of the fundraisers we've done locally um, at Brannigan Brothers and, and Moriarty's and some other places. They've been able to see uh, some footage and be able to... Uh, <laughs> just laugh and relate to those and I've had people come up after me after the fundraisers the last one we did at Rum Runners in town here people were like I had that exact same argument with an ex-girlfriend or so there's moments in the theater um, that I think they're they're pushed and, and grabbed emotionally with some of the dramatic work and then there's some some laugh out loud moments as well so you just mentioned some local businesses in the area. I understand that in your films you collaborate a lot with local businesses. Talk Definitely. about why you do that and what what you think is the value in collaborating with local businesses. Well, I think it's really important. I mean, from from all three features and and countless short films that we've done, uh, we've really you know had places like Falsetta's Casanova, Decker's Coffee Company, which is downtown. Uh, very good friend of mine, Jessica Decker, uh, owns and runs that establishment. And there's so many businesses in town, Stober's, uh, Moriarty's Pub, uh, Clem's Collectibles downtown, NBC. These are all places. A lot of these are bars, by the way. But there's a lot of places um, that are really open to to having us come in and film something because they know they're going to be taken care of. They know we're not going to trash the place. And the film is, uh, is going to be well received and played not only all over the state, but all over the country. And then as for Fairview Street, it, it got into its first international overseas festival in India, uh, the Stepping Stone International Film Festival in Bangalore, India, uh, where out of 175 movies from 24 different countries, Fairview Street was won the best feature film of the year at that festival. So a movie made right here in Lansing, Michigan, is getting that kind of recognition. And we're really proud that, uh, that Handlebar has won awards as well, the Best Michigan Feature at the Ferndale Film Festival in Detroit. And then we were able to get lucky into its first festival before it even screened here. It played at the Detroit Independent Film Festival uh, Friday, this past Friday, March 11th. It was nominated for seven major awards, and uh, Grace Ann Rowan won Best Supporting Actress for her performance in the film. So having places locally that we're able to shoot, it just being a Lansing native, born and bred here myself, it just really adds a certain flavor. Chicago's wonderful. New York City's phenomenal. But there's millions of movies made there. There's only three feature films made in this area, you know. So I'm really proud of that and proud of the recognition that it gives the films, but not, not just the films, the businesses as well. So we've talked a lot on exposure about the Michigan Film Tax Incentive and bringing big films to Michigan. And so you get, and, and a lot of people are getting excited about that, you know, Michigan workers working for films. Talk about how what you're doing here in Lansing is different than big productions coming in and, and bringing Michigan workers into, you know, big Hollywood films. Well, you know, my feeling with the tax incentives are it, they'd be phenomenal if they could stay. 
what ended up happening was they didn't get enough time to kind of show fruition and, and bearing fruit. And, uh, so they're, they're pretty much capped and nixed now. So you have a lot of the bigger budget films that have already pulled out where if they were able to stay here, yeah, I think there could be an infrastructure built. With that being said, I'm just one guy here, uh, work a day job as well, very blue collar. And uh, I, I really sacrifice to make the work that I want to make and be able to work with the people that I want to work with. Um, so we work with a lot of individuals that are extremely talented. The two gentlemen that their uh, their music makes up the soundtrack, Sam Corbin, Wesley Tkachik, uh, these are local musicians. We work with local actors, local businesses. Um, everybody that's a part of these films are from the state of Michigan. Um, you know, so it's like it's really important to uh, to support the things that are done here locally because. We don't qualify for the tax incentives. And being at so many film festivals, uh, A.E. Griffin and myself, very good friend of mine, uh, who's uh, just an important, vital collaborator, he's the director of photography on all three of these feature films, very talented writer, director in his own right. Um, we go to festivals all over the state, all over the country, and people keep asking about Michigan's tax incentives, and it's like, the films we make don't even qualify for that. And people ask us, well, how is this going to change the work that you do? And it's like, it, it doesn't at all. I mean, it's too bad that they're not here. I wish they'd stay, but as affecting my work single-handedly, it just has no effect on it. We fly so far under the radar that... uh our budgets aren't even close to that, and we're able to make quality work and work that gets out there. Uh, if if anybody wanted to knock that work, it's like, well, that's a disservice to the the sellout crowds that we've had at Celebration Cinema for all three movies, and also the the countless film festivals that have awarded these films n multiple nominations and multiple awards. So I'm wondering, is it hard? Is it? Do you ever have struggles to base your work just in the Lansing area? Do you feel limited at all? You know, I don't. There's a, there's a point in time, I think, as an individual, like pretty much anybody, I had that kind of uh, born-to-run mentality of wanting to get out of my hometown, leave the area, you know, go, go someplace else. And then I reached a point uh, of not being able to do that and kind of, you know, having a light go on in my head is that there's something really special about having roots, there's something really special about that. And I have so many friends that have traveled all over, and that's wonderful. But then there comes a point in time when you hit your 30s that you go, man, I don't have any place to call home. And I really looked and appreciated. Um, I had kind of that it's a wonderful life moment without jumping off a bridge uh, that, uh, that I really appreciated where I was from and who I am. And I don't look at those things as limitations. I really look at, at those as, as just wonderful gifts that I've been given and, and the blessings that I have. Um, I think creatively, too, when you have everything at your fingertips, there's really a limitation in what you can create. When we have budgetary create, uh, limitations, we have time restrictions, um, scheduling problems, it really makes the most creative thing happen. It, re it makes the best idea wins, uh, which I try to, to run all my sets with that mentality is that um, 
I'm open to ideas. I'm open to suggestions, and I don't take the fact that we have limitations as a negative. I lost my financial aid at school. I could have easily just packed up tent and said, well, this isn't working out. I'm going to go do something else because this is too difficult. That's that's not how I was raised and not my mentality. So it's it's rebel pictures for a reason. I mean, uh, A.E. Griffin's company's unsafe film office. I think that's why we get along so well is it's kind of a, a very similar mentality. So in your movies, um, again, for those that are just tuning in, I'm talking with Michael McCallum, award-winning Lansing filmmaker. His film Lucky will be out in Celebration Cinemas this weekend. You, you write, star, and direct your movies. I'm curious, is there ever, in general, has there ever been a conflict between working with cast members when you are director and lead in a production? I mean, sure. I, I, think, I think at times... And those those situations are very, you know, few and far between, which I'm proud of. Um, I think it takes some time for certain people to go, oh, okay, he's also calling the shots, but he's my co-star as well in certain scenes. I'm really thankful that a uh, uh, majority of the people that I cast are people that I spend enough time with beforehand that they kind of get the gist of what's going on. So it's really important that we kind of mix a lot of people that we work well with already and then we just blend some new faces in so you know each film is is filled with very wonderfully classically trained people <clears throat> and then also people that might not be even pursuing acting as a, a career as anything so i like to kind of just put the right person in the right place so i've been really lucky pun intended uh to be able to have the right people in the right places in front of and behind the camera now, how much improv goes into the filmmaking process? Um, well, the filmmaking process, I mean, you have to be able to think on your toes. Uh, Fairview Street, for instance, was a very uh, a planned out, structured shoot, structured script. I storyboarded uh, with these completely horrible stick figure drawings that no one will ever, ever see the light of day. Uh, but, you know, that film still had moments where we're on set this isn't working, what are we going to do? And you have to be able to be flexible. We plan this dolly shot to happen here. This isn't going to work, what are we going to do? Uh, and it's having a cast and crew around that can really trust the, the vision of the director being myself um, and be able to go off the page and off the tracks a little bit and take it off road. Uh, as for Lucky especially, this was a film that I really wanted to do something experimental with. So I didn't write a script out. I wrote a list of scenes and what would happen in those scenes, but nobody even saw that list. It was really me explaining every every possibility of what's happening in the scene, the bullet points that I need them to hit, and then we completely ad-libbed all the dialogue. So, I mean, that was completely spontaneous. But with that being said, there was a great care that went into figuring out the camera shots, the camera movements, transitional moments from scene to scene, uh, initial ideas of where I thought some of the, the wonderful music of, of Sam Corbin and Wesley Tkachik's could work, um, things that I knew... For instance, with the end of the film, if you get a chance to see it in the theaters this weekend, Saturday and Sunday, 2 and 7 p.m. at Celebration Cinema, uh, that was something that I had talked about for, for years before that, was this moment to this moment, and then it's going to cut here, and then the song goes here. And so there's a lot of planning that goes into that, as well as being spontaneous and trying to keep the whole thing going in a certain direction because it's very easy for that to wane and get moved in a different direction. So 
before we end this, we're gonna we're gonna play a song from um, the the film Lucky, and this is by um, local artist Sam Corbin. The song is Silhouettes. Is there anything that you want to say about this song or about the score of the film before we play it? Well, you know, it's like having to pick one track off here. It's like it's it's extremely difficult because I really really love every single song that's in it. Um, this song of Sam's uh, is off his first album, Goodnight Candlelight, and. Uh, it was just a track that I listened to a lot. I listened to that first album of Sam's and a mix CD that uh, Wesley Tkachik gave me <clears throat> in the preparation of coming up with this idea uh, with Justin Mushang and myself coming up with a story for it. Um, and I just thought their music would work so well in it. And this song of Sam's really, when you watch the film, it's coming off a really light moment uh, between my, my character Henry and uh, Grace Ann Rowan's character Jamie. And uh, I think the audience feels like it's going in a certain direction. And the song just really, really encapsulates what's going on internally with my character Henry. I mean, the movie is... Uh, you know, his, him going through the different dysfunctional relationships in a four-year period. So I think there's a lot of, um, with this character, uh, is just a lot of self-loathing that's not really explained, but maybe a lot of people feel that way. I don't know why this relationship isn't working, but it's just not working. And maybe it really isn't anything to do with the other person. It can just be with the, the person internally. So I think this song, Silhouette, by uh, Sam Corbin really encapsulates that. Um, the soundtrack is available on CD. We have DVDs available and movie posters. OneLuckyMovie.com And if you're interested in any of the other uh, award-winning feature films that we've done or a comedic trilogy, Waiter from Hell, you can go to RebelPictures.net and pick those up and uh, pre-order your tickets. CelebrationCinema.com And in the studio I have Lansing, award-winning Lansing filmmaker Mike McCallum. His film Lucky will be at Celebration Cinema this Saturday and Sunday at 2 p.m. and 7 p.m. For more information, you can go to Celebration. Is it Celebration Cinema? Yep, CelebrationCinema.com. And, you know, be sure people, it's like there's there are times we, we complain about nothing to do in, in town, and this is a a homegrown film made right here uh, by Michigan residents, a Lansing-made feature film, and there's not many times that you can say that. So enjoy that experience on the big screen. Well, thank you very much, Michael McCallum, for visiting us today. Thank you, Emily, so much. Have you ever seen the lights? In the northern sky in winter She's just like that And I wanna be just like that Can you see a silhouette Dancing in the moonlight
you are tuned to Impact Exposure. I'm your host, Emily Fox, and on the phone is Elizabeth Wygant. She is the Director of Public Relations for the Detroit Symphony Orchestra, and she's on the phone to talk about the state of the DSO as well as the strikes that have been going on since October 4th. Welcome to the show, Elizabeth. Hi there, Emily. Thanks for having me on. So as I said, the strikes have been going on since October 4th. How how did they begin, and do you when do you see this? How long? How much longer do you foresee this going on for? Well, yes, the strike did begin on October 4th when the musicians voted to approve a strike. Uh, we had offered them a contract, which is still offered. They could return to work at any time under the implemented co- offer that we put in place. Um, but they, they struck on October 4th, so we've been on strike ever since. And... Um, Assuming that assuming that your listeners have not followed every up or down of the strike, there have been a lot of a lot of twists and turns, lots of negotiations, lots of offers have gone back and forth. And although we would love to have the musicians back anytime, it is unknown when the strike will end. Uh, we provided the musicians with a final offer that we were we had. Uh, very high hopes that they would accept. Uh, we provided that offer to them on February 15th, and um, it was for a starting salary of $80,000 uh, with four weeks of paid vacation, full health care and benefits. Um, unfortunately, the union rejected that proposal by unanimous vote, so we put the rest of our season on suspension at that time. And suspension is an important word because we said that it would, we suspended it instead of canceling it because we are still open to the musicians if they do want to come back to work. And what we would do is we would reschedule concerts as fast as we could. But we had to suspend the season at that time because we couldn't keep all the guest artists and all the conductors that we have uh, on our roster on hold because they've got a gig, they've got you know, other things that they have to do, and uh, we just knew that it wasn't fair to keep them waiting. So we we try to be positive. We hope that the strike will end. The musicians have said that they um, are willing to return to work. They announced that, I believe, last Tuesday. And now the question is figuring out under what terms they would return to work. So That's kind of where we are right now. So it's not a matter that there is a possibility that the DSO could be no more. That oh, no, that is a possibility. That's a very real possibility. Um, if we, we still have concerts going on. We have wonderful educational programs, and we still have jazz concerts. Our next jazz concert is going to be uh, in April uh, with Anat Cohen and the Hot Club of Detroit. So we still have things going on at Orchestra Hall. But the, the question of whether or not we would be able to survive really comes into play when we, when we think about the kind of contract that we would get with the orchestra. For example, if we agreed to a contract that was beyond what we could afford, beyond what the Detroit Symphony Orchestra could pay, we would look at other very high um, fiscal deficits, like the one that the eight point million uh, one that we posted in December. If we keep posting high deficits, like eight point million per year, then we would be out of business in roughly two years or so. So that's one of the reasons why this strike has gone on for so long, unfortunately, is because we can only afford so much and we can't go beyond that. And if we go beyond that, it'll force us out of business. And even even the offer that we offered last time around 
we would still have roughly a $1.5 million deficit per year that we would have to find some way to overcome. So it wouldn't completely fix the problem, but um, it would Im- improve it. So that's one of the reasons why this has gone on, gone on for so long. Yeah, I was surprised when, when I realized the deficit was $8.8 million. Uh, something yeah, else the year that before I, it was 6.5. Right, right. And something else that I find interesting is that the Detroit Symphony Orchestra is one of the top 10 orchestras in the country, which to be such a high caliber and also at the same time to to be going through such a long strike is is pretty interesting. Um, and also mm-hmm. another factor that I, that I understand from why the strike may be going on is because um, the DSO used, used to get a lot of money from the, the auto companies, and since those have kind of taken a fall, that the DSO hasn't been getting as much money recently. Yeah, it, it was actually came from a lot of different factors. Um, as we all remember, especially those of us living here in southeastern Michigan, um, when the economy crashed in 2008, the DSO, just like every other nonprofit and almost every business in this community here, uh, suffered, for, their revenue stream suffered. So what happened was we were not, our, our patrons were not buying as many tickets as they did before. Um, they weren't able to give us as many donations, as much in donations as they were before. And corporations like the auto companies, but they weren't the only ones at all, but corporations like the auto companies weren't able to give us uh, the same amount of money. And um, same thing with the government. And so everybody in this community took a hit, and we definitely did in 2008. So because of that, when you have less money coming in from every stream, um, our co- and our costs went up at the same time because we were in the final year of our last contract with the orchestra, and as part of our contract with the orchestra, they actually experienced a 10% uh, income increase in 2008, and that was contracted. Uh, that was that was part of our deal with them. At the time, we asked them to open reopen their contract with us and take a take a uh, pay cut then, but they elected not to, and so hence we had greater deficits then, and it pushed us further into um, the state that we are in right now. So. I'm, I'm a music major here at Michigan State University, and when I've talked to some of my friends that have played um, in orchestra hall and have played with the DSO, one of their comments when we were talking about the strikes was that the location of where the DSO performs is an or- orchestra hall, which is a beautiful venue, um, but at the same time it's located in downtown Detroit, and most of the people that go to see DSO aren't necessarily from the city of Detroit, and some people may be maybe afraid of the city or be weary to go to concerts late at night in downtown Detroit. Do you think that that has played a factor? Maybe less people have been wanting to get um, seasonal tickets from the DSO based on the location um, that it's in downtown Detroit. Well, you know what, that's, that's, I think, a challenge for a lot of the businesses and a lot of the venues that are here in the city. I live in the city myself, and I've been here for a while. And, yeah, you know, that's a, that is a challenge, um, making sure that everyone is, has a good comfort level about coming to the city. But that's something that we've been dealing with for a long, long time. Um, and so, but, but yet, what also is interesting is not just thinking about comfort levels coming into the city, but the distance. So if you live in Clarkston, uh, or if you live in Ann Arbor, what have you, and you like classical music, and you you say, well, I'd like to come to Detroit, I'd like to hear the DSO, you know, that's about a, almost an hour ride for you. And so because this is such a large 
suburban metro area, we've realized, really realized, that if we want to really survive and succeed in this community, we actually have to leave Orchestra Hall. we got to get up. We gotta. The orchestra's gotta get out of Orchestra Hall, drive out, and go see the people where they live, and play music for them there, so that they can experience us there in community centers, in places of worship, in schools. We've got to get outside our doors. And we already do that anyway. We've done a lot of work like that, but we want to really do a lot more of it in the coming years because we know that um, we'll be turning people on to, mu- to music and to all the kinds of music that we do. And, you know, maybe they'll decide to come down and see us more frequently, but either way it doesn't really matter because we're going to be going out to see them. Now, Elizabeth, I'm, I'm curious, what, in your mind, what is the value of classical music in Detroit and, and being able to have it there as we have in the, for so many years? Oh, classical music is one of the most gorgeous art forms there is. Um, you know, it transcends you to a new place, like all music does. I like I like every kind of music. I listen to a lot of music. I listen to alternative, I listen to rock, pop, classical, jazz, blues, you name it. And classical music is really is a special formula of music. That's how I see it. And, you know, you listen to it and you're transported to a different place. And it's a almost spiritual in a way, but it doesn't have to be. But it really takes you outside yourself. And music also at this level um, is really unique. Um, you know, when you come to see, as you know this, uh, Emily, when you, if you come to see a classical music performance, it's not amplified. Our hall itself is the amplifier. There are no microphones on stage unless we have a singer, unless we have a, somebody who has to address the audience. But it's just a completely different art form, and there is modern classical music that is exciting, just like there are the favorites, Beethoven, Mozart, Brahms, etc. And classical music brings a whole different audience down to the city. Um, it, it's, it's, just, it's just a wonderful thing. I, I'm not sure how else to articulate it. And what are your hopes for what has been happening with the Detroit Symphony Orchestra? I'm really hoping that we can that we can come to an agreement with the orchestra that we can find a way to work together again. It's been really challenging for every person involved with it. And I hope that we can come to a settlement, we can put aside our differences, and we can come back and make music at Orchestra Hall, and that we can leave Orchestra Hall and get out to the communities around them and show them how wonderful and exciting uh, we are in this music. Cause that is my hope. And finally, where can people go um, for possibly um, seeing the Detroit Symphony Orchestra in concert in their local area, as well as keeping up with what's been going on with the Detroit Symphony Orchestra? Uh, Well, if somebody wanted to get information on what's going on with the DSO, they would just have to visit our website at uh, DetroitSymphony.com. And that's a great place for all the information on what's going on with us. Well, on the phone is Elizabeth Wygant. She is the Director of Public Relations for the Detroit Symphony Orchestra, and she was on the phone to talk about the DSO's strikes that have been going on since October 4th. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. Thanks so much for having me, Emily. You're listening to Impact Exposure. You are tuned to Impact Exposure. I'm your host, Emily Fox, and as part of the Michigan Storytelling segment, Melissa Day-Hasbrook is in the studio to talk about her stories fest, as well as read an original poem from her series, The Mason Asker. Welcome to the show, Melissa Day-Hasbrook. Thank you. 
So first off, talk about what is Her Stories Fest. Her Stories Fest is a celebration of stories about women during Women's History Month. And it's also a fundraiser for the Women's Center of Greater Lansing. At this time, the Women's Center is having a financial crisis and trying to raise $10,000 by the end of March. And there's been an incredible community response to this need with an incredible event, Her Stories Fest, offering word art, an ensemble performance, benefit concert with buffet, and a silent auction. And when will it take place? It will take, yep, it'll take place this Friday, March 18th. It begins with a reception at 6.30 at Everybody Reads Bookstore which is uh, 2019 East Michigan Avenue. And then it will continue at Gone Wired Cafe next door with a benefit concert and buffet. Excellent. Well, without further ado, would you be willing to do a a brief reading for us? Certainly. This is my poem called Balance. The land strives for balance. Beneath the crust, plates float, and fluid resists three kilometers of ice from thousands of years ago. The land rises as buoyancy opposes an ancient weight as scientists trace the interaction to molecules. Guided by Newton's theory that layers move at different velocities and that fluid arises from stress. Topside, humans reside on the land that rises. Some live under pressure. Some resist life's flow. Some glimpse beneath the surface. And some strive for balance. Guided by the Indian theory that the land is alive, that she resists harm, and she speaks, whether or not we listen. And in the studio for the Michigan Storytelling segment is Melissa Day Hasbrook. That was her original poem from her series, The Mason Asker. And she is a part of the Her Stories Festival, which will take place this Friday, March 18th, at Gone Wired Cafe, as well as Everybody Reads, to benefit the Women's Center of Greater Lansing. Thank you so much, Ms. Melissa Day Hasbrook, for vi- visiting us today. And thank you for having me back. Thanks for listening to this evening's Exposure, only on 88.9 The Impact. An exclusive podcast from Impact.